This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by PhotoWorkshopSearch.com, the Internet's most comprehensive database of information about photography workshops. With over 500 listings and more, you can discover workshops throughout the U.S. and all over the world. Find out for yourself by going to PhotoWorkshopSearch.com. Hi, this is Ebody and X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Well, as mentioned last week, The Candid Frame app is now available for both the iOS operating system and for the Android. To download them, all you need to do is use your device and go to the iTunes Music Store or to the Amazon App Store to download either the iOS or the Android operating system, and it's available for free because of the kind contributions of people just like you. Once installed, new episodes will be automatically downloaded to your device. And you can also choose your favorites to return to them for a second, third, or maybe even a fourth listen. So download it today, and please take the time to rate it and write a review in the iTunes or the Amazon stores, because it's going to be those comments and those ratings that's going to help to create awareness not only of the app, but of the show. Well, I've been part of the photo industry for longer than I care to admit sometimes. But one of the benefits of it is that I've had the chance to meet some very, very cool and talented people as a result. And today's guest, Dan Steinhardt, is primarily known as the professional imaging marketing manager for for Epson. So I have had many a meeting with Dan where he's talking to me about the, the latest printers or papers that Epson has had to offer. And uh, one of the one of the great things about going to the trade shows is when you go to the Epson booth. You get to see these wonderful prints by all these talented photographers, all of which were printed by Dan. And though we could have a lot to talk about just about the process of, of him printing these images from these great photographers, I really have been wanting to talk to Dan about his own work because he's sort of a self-defined amateur enthusiast photographer, but he's a great talent. He's really, really good. And I was really happy when a few years ago, he finally got his, his website up with the help of our, our mutual friend, R.C. Concepcion. And uh, I think that what Dan brings to the table is not just his incredible knowledge about printing, but about just making the time in between those moments where you're at work or you have family stuff to do about just going out and just making pictures for yourself because when you go to Dan's website and you take a look at those photographs none of those photographs were done on quote-unquote assignment those those are photographs that he squeezed in in between meetings and appointments so if you've been frustrated by the fact that you're not able to make more time for your photography I hope you'll listen to this interview and be inspired to grab your camera and whether it's lunchtime or on your way home or on your way to work, making the time to just make a few photographs to keep that passion alive. Well, Dano, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's been a long time coming. I'm really happy to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. Yeah, it's great to uh, be with you and um, uh, remotely and, and I guess live, yeah, whatever we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope you take this compliment in, in the way that it's intended, but I have to say that you're one of my favorite amateur photographers. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself the epitome of um, amateur photography because, you know, amateur, I believe, comes, it's a French Latin roots, which means lover of the craft. And uh, I'm in a very enviable position of doing what I do professionally and then with my own time 
doing photography for the love of it and that I, I don't have to worry about taking pictures for a living anymore. Yeah. Well, <laughs> photography's always been a part of your life. You went to Brooks Institute. You, you worked for Kodak and you've been working for Epson for, uh, for, for a while now, but you, you still identify as being an amateur photographer and you really sort of embrace that even though you you know have access to a lot of things that some photographers would be very envious of why are you so happy to identify with that idea of an amateur you just gave a, a wonderful description but what is it about that that really feels like defines what you do with the camera yeah i think it's and i'm i can't tell you the source and i should know this i know it's Mal malcolm uh, gladwell is it yeah uh, malcolm gladwell mm-hmm and he talks about uh, 10,000 hours. And then in his studies, he found that people who really got good at something or became experts in something or became comfortable with something, it was putting in 10,000 hours of work. And I've been very fortunate uh, in photography, and it's actually at the high school level, or I went to what was considered to be the best high school photo program in the country then, uh, Reseda High under Warren King. And I was exposed to so many great people. And and we all thought we were brilliant in high school. And I look at that stuff now and go, well, for high school, it was okay. But, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career to be in photography, both professionally and then working in the marketing side. And I think on my personal stuff, I'm probably getting close to that 100,000 hours. And I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. And it's very exciting to be able to basically use tools that while, you know, things have changed, it's still basically a capture device with a lens. Um, I'm d- discovering stuff all over again. You know, you, you've mentioned in, in previous interviews and in other conversations about where you went to, to high school, which was Reseda High. And though you went to Brooks Institute, it's always struck me that that seems to have been like the pivotal moment in your life that really made photography special for you. That even though you had a lot of great training at, at, at Brooks and and with your professional work, that seems to have been such a, a game changer for you. What was it that happened during that time that, that made photography so important to you? I think it was a, a time in my life when I had a great interest in the sciences, but uh, came to a fast realization that I couldn't do the math. <laughs> 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 and photography started out as a way to satiate this interest in the technology and to have success with it. Uh, and and I see a lot of amateurs, advanced amateurs today who embrace the technology. Uh, they, in many ways, know more about cameras and gears and color, advanced color science than a lot of pros, but it's almost like you have to get that basic knowledge. You have to have a deep technical understanding of things, and then it's the artistic side that's much harder to develop and to evolve from. So it started with me technically, and it was something I was able to embrace, have success with, right from making you know my first black and white print in a in a bathroom at the age of fourteen with the lights off. Um, I think a lot of us went th- through. So I, I, I gained success technically, and it gave me the enough confidence to be able to move forward and explore the artistic side, which is really much harder. Yeah. You know, it, when I think about it, for me, it seems like it's a time that's really ripe for being challenged. I think a, a lot of students in high school want to just sort of skate through and just get through it and graduate and move on with their lives. But I think it's if you f- find a mentor or a situation where you're challenged and you find 
opportunities to excel that it really can define not just what you end up doing, but how you you do it. Do you, do you think that that was the case for you and, and that was sort of part of the story? I think at a high school level, I had success. And uh, success uh, breeds confidence. And it's kind of cool to be able to present finished works of art, be it as a print, if you're a photographer, be it as a an artist, if you can do watercolors or drawings, that uh, separates you from many of your peers. So I think that was the other thing that really struck me was the ability to create and the ability to show something that others would be, well, frankly, they, they would be impressed with whether or not they really were or not back then. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, even to this day, you know, that there's still something cool about being able to make something and to show it and present it, either as an exhibit, either as a gift. There are many people who are very gifted in working with wood and building furniture, and that's a tremendous gift and a, a way to really please people. And same thing, you know, if, if you've ever been fortunate enough to know an artist and an artist gives you one of her, his works, that's probably a real special moment if you receive something like that. Yeah. And photography allowed me to do that, to be able to present the print. You know, and, and it's not about the technology at that point. It's about you and to be able to give something that means something to family members, to friends, or to collectors. is. I think that was the big moment for me. It was I could produce something that other people couldn't, and I could do it better than those that could do calculus. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, talk, speaking about presenting your work, when when you finally get around to, to putting up a website, I was I was so pleased to get to see uh, to see a, a body of your work because I had seen small samplings of it, but uh, when I got to finally see your website, I had a, a, a much greater appreciation for how good of a photographer you are, and and one of the things that it's always excites me about looking at, at your work is is the way you describe it uh that most of these images happen between meetings that you have your normal day job where you're doing all the stuff that you're doing for you know for for epson in your role as a, as a marketer but that these photographs are not as a result of any assignment you receive from them or anybody else these are images that you you're just going out there on your own and and making it and i think it's just a great inspiration not only for me but for a lot of other people who have a a normal job and are always trying to squeeze in time to make good photographs and you know and the website all the images in there except for when I'm on vacation. Uh, maybe that's a between meeting thing too. Uh, our shot when, you know, when I'm working now, I, I am fortunate that I do travel a lot of my job. So it does take me to interesting places. Although often some of the best stuff that I am able to see when I'm traveling is not necessarily in the tourist spots. If you get to know my work, and, and it's not like, oh, okay, I'm driving home. Yeah, sometimes I'll get lucky and sometimes I see things. And, and it kind of gets to Jay Maisel's uh, mantra of carry the camera because without it, it's really tough to take pictures. Uh, but, you know, that, that 10,000 hours really starts to pay off. You know, I can look out the window and I can look at the weather and I can look at the time of year and I, I can take a pretty good guess at, you know, the light might be good for good shots or, you know, the light might not be so great for shots. 
so I, I try to plan out where I can. But usually the best photography is, you know, when work is off early in the morning. If you're doing street stuff and you're outdoors, it's early in the morning. It's late in the afternoon. It's uh, it can be found in the most mundane places. And you like finding those mundane places, as you mentioned. Uh, you don't like like the big tourist destinations. You like those little nook and crannies of a neighborhood or a community to find your photographs. I go to the tourist destinations and do the the 180, another Jay Maisel uh, recommendation of you know look look around you because that might be the more interesting picture. You know, Las Vegas is a great place for that. You know, some of us find ourselves there for trade shows all the time. And I'll always go to the Sphinx and the Eiffel Tower and the pyramids and volcanoes and look 180 degrees in the opposite direction because that's where the interesting images are of the people, not of the actual tourist attraction. Uh, there's an image, um, a post I just did recently. You know, I was in Vancouver. You know, it's kind of a joke at work. It's like, Dan will volunteer to go to all the lousy cities in America. That's where he likes to go. But <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of truth to that. Uh, but, you know, I was in Vancouver, which is, you know, an absolutely stunning, beautiful place. You know, I was kind of like going, boy, this place is boring for pictures. You know, it looks like a postcard. You know, and people, there's people, professionals that can do it better than me. Uh, but I was uh, outside of uh, the convention center. It's something we were doing. And, you know, it's you see the... the the harbor there and the mountains and it's crystal clear and it's just stunning and it's beautiful. And I did the shoulder shrug. Oh, well, no pictures. Then out of the corner of my eye, I saw a window washer, you know, hanging uh, from some ropes. That was my picture. So you never know. But if it didn't have the camera, it wouldn't have happened. And sometimes your, your images, you know, happen during a time when like lunchtime or, or after work where people are sort of making a, a, a beeline for home or to get something to eat. And, and it seems like, you maybe sometimes make photography sort of the priority that you're not so much in a rush sometimes that you, that you manage to sort of slow down and give yourself the permission and the time to be able to make these photographs. Am I kind of right in describing that? Well, I think the key thing is understanding the light and when is the light going to be good if you're you know, working outdoors and uh, when possible carving out those hours to yourself. Uh, often they don't conflict with anything. Uh, they're, they're never in the middle of the day. And it usually works out. It's at the end of uh, trade show hours. It's before work starts. It's, you know, on the weekend, the night before. So it, it, it actually works out really well. Now, what's a drag is I'm really not a morning person, but I know the light's good then. So, so I force myself to get up. And <laughs> what's... But what's nice, and this gets into, you know, the difference between an amateur and a pro, you know, an amateur can go out and shoot and come back with nothing and it's no big deal. A pro comes back with nothing and they're out of business. So this part of my life, this part of my creative life, there's no pressure, you know, there's no expectations. And that should, it gives me a certain amount of freedom to experiment and try things. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, when you're a working professional photographer, you know, you'll hear pros talk about, well, I'm always experimenting, I'm always trying, you know, you're not learning unless you're failing. But you'll never hear them talk, say that when they're doing a job. Yeah. You know? uh, and ironically, you know, I was talking with my wife about this just the other day, uh, when I was a, a working photographer in Chicago and I did a lot of uh, tabletop and food work, 
And I used to always be really jealous of the photographers that had these uh, these great outdoor assignments to go to, you know, the the wilds of Alaska and shoot, you know, car batteries in the snow starting up and uh, going to uh, uh, these great scenic places that are very expensive to get to, but, you know, it's all part of the jobs. And I was always jealous of that. And the irony is that in my role at Epson, uh, I am sort of an art director and I'm doing exactly that, but I'm not the photographer. I'm the art director. And I get to see what it's like being the photographer on those jobs. And it's work. It's a lot of pressure. You have to succeed. You want to try things, but if you don't come back, if you don't hit a home run every time, you know, you're only as good as your last job. Yeah. Uh, so, so for those who might be listening to this that are, you know, amateurs, you know, one of the great things is uh, there should be no fear of failure because there's no risk. You've got nothing to lose. You have your time. And sometimes when you put your time into it and you come back with nothing, but you tried, it's usually a great learning experience. Yeah. But, you know, when you have those circumstances, those challenging circumstances, it can be very demanding and the stress can be very high. But sometimes the, the challenge itself of pulling off the job and delivering something that's not just good, at, but from exceptional, that's exceptional, really kind of furthers your growth as, as a photographer. So, you don't have that. So what kind of challenges do you end up creating for yourself so that you don't end up just creating the same beautiful pictures over and over again and that you really sort of further your growth as a shooter? Uh, well, there's two things on that I've tried and have failed with. Um, and this was advice that I got from uh, Lois Greenfield, who is this amazing photographer in New York who does uh, dance work and, uh, we were talking about how it's easy to get into a rut. It's easy to go to, you know, the mashed potatoes uh, photographs and do them over and over and they taste good, but they're the same thing. And uh, that's to force yourself to go out with a lens you don't normally use and make photographs and leave the lens you really are comfortable with, leave it in the car. Uh, and I've tried that and I have, um, I would say, uh, 90% now make it higher 95% failure rate so far. <laughs> <laughs> now what's cool about being an amateur is you don't show that to anybody, you know, <laughs> but it kind of helps you understand. It helped me cause I just went out with a, a, a very wide angle lens and you know, I just made horrible pictures with it, horrible pictures, more and more horrible pictures with it. Uh, but what it, it's helped me to recognize is the few times for my style when the wide angle lens really will work and when not to keep uh, pushing at it. So it's kind of, it's, it's helped me to learn, but it's been painful. And it, you know, you go into Lightroom, you look at all your images and you go, oh, these are, this was crap. <laughs> but so what is the sort of your, your, your normal lens and what did you discover does make those shots that you use with the ultra wide angles work? Well, I haven't found many for me, <laughs> but, uh, the, the stuff that works is nature stuff where you have big vistas and you're relatively close to the subject. And I normally don't shoot a lot of that stuff. Uh, but it really came, I can see for me, that's where it works. Uh, I can remember back in high school days getting my first wide angle lens and just 
loving the distortion on the edges and loving the, you know, we do things with cars and get the hood to really kind of splash out and or zoom out. Um, those are very dated and, you know, just not my style. Uh, so it's it's finding the wide angle lens that doesn't look like a wide angle lens when I'm in that situation. And what's your your comfort lens, for lack of a better word? Well, I would say today, almost all of my good pictures are shot with a twenty eight three hundred, and that's uh, you know on a full frame sensor. I'm using the D eight hundred now, and that just is you know. There's times when I wish. Uh, I had the DX sensor, so I'd be more like a 450 mil lens instead of a 300. But it just seems to work for me, and and this is a little bit in contradiction to you know going out with a different lens. But at least for me, the old adage of the more lenses you have, the less pictures you take seems to work. I, I just go out with one lens, and I don't even bother with camera bags, and you know I try not to even carry a bag. Just carry the camera with one lens on it. A uh, couple of extra cards in case, you know, something really great comes along and make sure the battery's charged. Yeah. I mean, keeping it, keeping it simple, paring it down. And, and on top of that, being so familiar with your gear that you're, you're seeing past the equipment to just seeing what's in front of you, I think really gives you that freedom and allows you to, 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 to capture images that you might otherwise lose if you're too preoccupied with, you know, uh, switching lenses or, or, or trying to get familiar with a piece of kit that you're not really comfortable with. Yeah. And you know, the more stuff you have, the more intimidating it is for people that you potentially want to photograph uh, the more, Oh, you look like a pro oh, you're getting paid for this. Oh, is this some kind of dangerous thing? Uh, it helps you to blend in. And in a few cases, it's helped me to run away. quick. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you were a sprinter. <laughs> well, well, I'm not. So, um, yeah, there's a funny case where it was actually, you know, it was a break at work. We were in Amsterdam, and we were in the part of town that you can imagine we were in, and my colleague dared me to take photographs in this area. So, yeah, sure. And then a certain person came running after us, and uh, and my colleague said, Dano, you know, all I really cared about was running faster than you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you have access to some great uh, photographers. You've men mentioned Jay Mazel and Lois Greenfield, and there have been countless others. And it seems to me that that's been like a sort of graduate school for photography for, for you. I, I can imagine the, the things that you've learned and taken away from the many conversations what you've had from from these photographers. What what has that meant to you in terms of you, your growth as a photographer? Well, I, I recognize that I'm extraordinarily fortunate in my marketing role at Epson to work with so many uh, big names in photography and also so many names in photography not known who also do amazing work. Uh, it's a great inspiration. Uh, and as I am uh, in some ways the curator of uh, imaging at Epson trade shows and I work with my colleagues on image selection, you'll see in direct mail pieces on email and certainly some of the ads that we commission. Uh, that whole process, it's kind of a, you know, just by osmosis makes you a better photographer. But my, my favorite story on this is actually a time-honored technique of critique. And certainly when I was at Brooks, it was known as every week there was the crit. Mm. And the Brooks 
method of uh, critique was to completely tear apart every possible photograph, make it as painful as possible. And while you're going through that process at the time and it's not pleasant, it's a, it's a wonderful way to get better and it forces you to look at the details and it's made me uh, to a much better photographer and also better just about everything. Uh, but I, um, I was asked uh, by Jay Maisel, who you've mentioned, he wanted to look at my work and he asked me to put together a series of images. And this is several years ago now. So maybe I'll, I'll work up the nerve to do it again. <clears throat> and uh, this was to present at the, the New York Salon. And, oh, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. And, uh, and we did this on the phone. So there were 60 images. Uh, now, Jay has a very distinctive way of speaking. And, That's a nice uh, way of putting it. Uh, yeah. And there's uh, great command of language, um, use of words, maybe not appropriate for this program, inter, you know, place very carefully to really drive home a certain point. Uh, but this experience was one over on the phone and Jay's looking at my first one. And I think he's saying something like, you know, you have, you have this amazing way of creating gesture, you know, which he's always talking about. How do you create mood and texture and gesture in this particular image? You know, he was complimenting me on this first image. I was like, wow, this is great. Second image came along, and again, again, you know, and he threw out some noise. You've been hiding. Why don't you show this stuff? You're full of, you know, he used the word sublime to describe a curve in the track of a San Francisco cable car that I captured. And I'm feeling my confidence levels going up really high. We get to the third one, and again, he talks about amazing use I have of, of color and shape and how the two can work with each other or work against each other. And I really nailed it in this image. <clears throat> So I'm, I'm sitting a little taller in my chair. I'm feeling really good about myself. We get to image number four of 60. <clears throat> and I can remember this very distinctly. Jay said, and this, this is where the disappointment begins. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy, you know, and we went on and went through all the rest of them. And, boy, you know, I, it took me a while to, you know, you know, come out of a bathroom. <laughs> but, but that is the time honored way of getting better is putting yourself into a critique situation where you're going to take a lot of shots and not photographic shots, but a lot of shots to your ego. <laughs> and if you're working with people that are always praising you, uh, you're not getting a real critique. That's a great story. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, PhotoWorkshopSearch.com, the only resource on the internet to search for a photography workshop based on specific criteria. Users can search for workshops based on price, date, duration, location, and subject. Upon doing a search, users will find the basic highlights about a workshop, and then they can click through to the workshop website for more information and to register. They have over 500 workshops on the database right now, and they're adding more every day. Find out for yourself how easy it is to find a workshop that's just right for you. PhotoWorkshopSearch.com, created by a photographer for photographers. Um, well, you, t- you talked about earlier about being able to be a good printer when you were in high school and 
And you're a wonderful printer. One of my favorite things about going to the trade shows is going to the Epson booth and seeing these prints that you've that you've made that hang up in the uh, in the little area that Epson always has. And it's just wonderful, wonderful work. And and one of the things I wanted to ask you about that is that you're getting a diversity of different imagery from all these different photographers, portrait photographers, um, photojournalists, documentary photographers. And when you're looking at those pictures and you're trying to decide, okay, I'm going to print this on this particular paper to showcase the paper, how do you decide what image is perfectly suited for a particular for a particular paper? It can't can't be can't be easy at times. It, it, it's uh, it's fun and it's challenging and it's also a, a process of uh, not necessarily trial and error, but trial. Uh, depending on the trade show, you know, if it's a portrait wedding type of trade show, you know, the, not all, but the majority of images are are geared for that. And like for Photo Plus uh, Expo that's coming up, more commercial, uh, more serious amateur and some portrait wedding. Uh, the Epson side of me is trying to find images that really show off what the paper and the printer and the ink combination can do. Uh, but that's only part of it. And the other part of it is images that inspire so that it's about the paper. And then if it's really successful, the technology gets out of the way, the paper gets out of the way and people just see amazing photographs. That's the ultimate, um, measurement of, did you choose the right printer ink and paper is if, People just see this amazing photograph, and they're not talking about, ooh, that, that doesn't seem right, or ooh, there's too much texture in there, or, ooh, it's too shiny, or ooh, it's too bright. Uh, so it, it's kind of esoteric, and you know, how do you get to that level? But that is my ultimate goal, that by choosing the right combination of all the technology, it all gets out of the way, so you see this amazing photograph. Can, can you give me a recent example of a, of a photograph by someone where you kind of felt like you found that sweet spot between exhibiting the image in a beautiful way, but also sort of demonstrating the capabilities of the, of the printer and the, and the inks and the paper. Well, there's a, there's a couple of uh, examples of this. And when it gets down to, you know, when, it, when we're talking about printers and ink, there's very definitive ways in order to make the right decision. You know, it has to do with size and it has to do with the uh, type of gamut you're after. Uh, and we can talk about, you know, the specifics of that, but with papers, there is no right or wrong answer. So you have to go into that knowing that whatever you do, someone's going to have a different opinion and you have to be able to accept that, that that's okay. Uh, but I, in the last couple of weeks, some images that I've printed that have surprised me a little bit are images from a, a well-known color photographer named Arthur Meyerson. Uh, Arthur's uh, based in Houston, Texas. Uh, he runs uh, a lot of workshops based on color, teaches the Santa Fe workshops. And when you think about someone who works in color and vibrant color, you tend to think, well, you want a paper that's going to have the, the widest possible gamut. Uh, these would be things like exhibition fiber paper, uh, premium luster photo paper. And uh, Arthur's images look great on that paper. But Arthur's images, Arthur, you know, he had a couple of images, and you know, if you come to the show, you know, I'll have them up. Where he likes to shoot through things. Uh, he likes to shoot through curtains. Uh, he likes to shoot through screen doors. He likes that textural quality in the front with imaging behind. And I started printing those uh, with his permission on some fine art papers. 
and specifically on smooth fine art papers. Uh, these papers have a slightly reduced color gamut, but they have a, a certain depth to them uh, that's different. It's a different type of depth. It's not anything that you can articulate in a modulation transfer curve function. All, that's, all that comfort level that advanced amateurs and some pros, they like to go to and they like to go to their notes from RIT and certainly Mike from Brooks, you start to get into terms that, you know, they're hard to define. And when I printed Arthur's stuff on Hot Press Bright, which has an optical brightening agent, and Hot Press Natural, which is doesn't have an optical brightening agent, these images where he was shooting through objects, they took on a, a, a wonderful th- three-dimensional character. Uh, there are other images, <coughs> pardon me, that look great with texture. Now, a little trick with textured papers. In general, the smaller the print, uh, the less successful one will be with texture papers because the texture becomes more prominent. And there's and I've seen things in 8x10 that look great or 8.5x11 look great with texture, but texture papers like the cold press papers and velvet fine art and this new paper, exhibition watercolor paper, when you start getting into... 13, 19, 17, 22, and larger, uh, the right image takes on an interesting quality. Some might call it, it's really not three-dimensional. That's somewhat of a cliche. It takes on a new level of dimensionality. Sometimes it's your angle of view and you get into the real coarse textured papers. And uh, what I've done to help explain that is I found one image that is a great test image. This is really difficult to do to produce, but I have printed this one image by Jim Richardson, who's a really good friend, amazing National Geographic photographer, uh, that he shot in Burano. Uh, Burano is the less famous island in the Venetian Canal, or it's not in the canal, but in the, the Venetian Archipelago, I think it's the correct name. <clears throat> Everyone knows Venice. Uh, some people know Murano, which is where the glass is made, but Burano is w- famous for lace. And the buildings in this very small little island are all painted in very vibrant colors. Uh, so this image has a lot of vibrant colors, but it also has subtle tones. And you see two people walking down the street and you see texture of the sidewalk. And I've printed that on all of uh, Epson's signature worthy papers. And you'll see that in Premium Luster, in Exhibition Fiber, the Hot Press, the Cold Presses, and the new Exhibition Watercolor paper. And you can really get a sense of how these different papers handle DMAX, how they handle highlights, what they do with color gamut. And there's some uh, surprises for some and, and some things that will make a lot of sense. That's what I've been seeing most recently. And what I, I tell people who are new to this and they're intimidated by so many paper choices out there. Uh, you know, look at the Epson Signature Worthy collection and then there's other manufacturers out there, is to try to think in terms of a few categories. Uh, are you a person that likes the rich, saturated, gutsy blacks and colors? Do you like a more painterly look? And it's okay if the answer is both. Uh, then it's, are you a textured person? Are you a smooth person? Uh, that usually will you know, kind of bring things down. And then you want to, uh, and canvas should also be discussed. And maybe canvas is a little separate uh, category. And then you want to test 
on an image like I've shown at Photo Plus uh, from Jim Richardson or, or your own image, obviously, and try these different things and then break that down now, bring it down to like the two or three papers that really make sense for the type of work that you do and the mood swings that we all go through. And we all go through them. There's times when, you know, I can't look at anything unless it's on exhibition fiber paper. And then there's times when I'll just go into a, a fine art cotton fiber mode. But you want those two or three papers, and then you want to you want to start logging those hours. I don't know if you need 100,000 hours. Uh, but you really want to work those papers work so that you understand them. And, and then you're not constantly battling making a decision because you're down to those two or three papers, and you know which one's going to work best for you. Mm. Well, you make an interesting point about the, the, the test print. About, I mean, not the test print, but the test image. What do you think people, if, if they're trying to determine what sort of paper is best for them, working with a singular image with a variety of papers is really important. But what are some of the things that you think that they should consider in terms of those images, in terms of tonality, in terms of color, to, in order to make the best assessment in terms of when they're comparing papers? Well, uh, this would be, this is the Dano um, anti-establishment uh, theory. Uh, do not use any traditional test targets. Uh, do not use what used to be known as Shirley's. Uh, do not use uh, patches. Do not use all of these measurement tools. Because I've yet to meet a photographer that ever exhibited a Q60 test target or an 18% gray card. Find, and I don't think there's any one image that represents you know, the ultimate test. But find an emotional-based image, or at least two or three emotional-based images. Not oh, this shows me I have reds, this shows me I have this. You want to avoid test targets that are used for color management. And if you're a people photographer, have two or three images uh, that are representative of the type of lighting that you often find yourself in. If you're not doing controlled studio lighting with different types of skin tones. If you're a nature landscape person, you know, find those tones that you are drawn to. If you're a fall color person or if you're a, you know, an evergreen person. Or, you know, if you're doing black and white, which I like to do a lot of, you know, are you into hard, contrasty light or are you into the you know, more flatter tonal ranges? You know, examples would be kind of the work of Julianne Cost, uh, who I'm very fortunate that she's entrusted me to uh, print some of her images. And she likes to work with a, in general, a, a flatter tonal scale. She's not into the gutsy black and the blown out, you know, highlight. She likes all those subtle gray tones in between. It's really kind of find out who you are and then find those two or three different images that make sense. But my advice would be avoid the test target you can buy. They'll force you into making the same boring mashed potato recipe. Yeah. I mean, when I go to exhibits, I see, especially work from several decades ago, uh, stuff that was being produced like during the 30s and the 40s and 50s. And it's really interesting to see the diversity of ways people printed. I mean, now we tendency, uh, there's a tendency to, to want to have really bold blacks and really broad, you know, highlights. And then I look at the work of like Roy DeCarava and W. Eugene Smith, who skewed their work towards the mid, mid tones all the way to the blacks. It's like, you're not going to find a perfectly pristine, you know, highlight in, in, 
any of those prints. And then you have other landscapes where they're, they're, there's no real high contrast. It's just like you just mentioned about uh, Julian Koss's work about it's, it's the exploration of gradations of, of gray. And I think that's something that's often lost in this age of digital printing that, that there's so much choice and versatility in terms of how a photographer can and should interpret their own photographs that they don't have to adhere to some hard and fast rule in terms of what quote unquote makes a good print. There, there are no right and wrong answers. And that's difficult for some people. You know, often people come up to me at the trade show and go, Hey, I do this. What paper should I use? I have to kind of take them through a 10 step process to find the two or three papers that might work. Uh, and that's what digital well, I, I don't even like to use the word digital printing. To me, it's just photographic printing today. Um, the, sometimes there are no right or wrong answers. And back to that uh, critique I had from uh, Jay Maisel, uh, everyone's going to have an opinion. And if you're an advanced amateur, in the end, it's your opinion that counts the most. Uh, but I will say, you have to find that balance uh, between art and technique. Because I get files uh, from many different photographers, if you have really good, strong, technical, technically well done files, that allows you to go anywhere. Uh, if you have files that are poorly managed, that restricts you. Uh, so there, there are some that don't shoot in RAW and they're using JPEG or they're in the wrong color spaces or they're not working in 16-bit or a whole variety of um, other things. Uh, and I've seen more of this now because all of these images can look great on a, a tablet. They all look great on a smartphone. Uh, but printing is more demanding. And uh, in order to make a great, a great print, you have to have a good technical foundation. And then comes the artistic side. But if you don't understand some of those basic technical things, you're going to struggle. So your work is really bold in color. You have some really like strong blacks. Uh, there's a little strong graphic nature to, to to your work. Currently, what what printer and papers do you find yourself preferring for for your own work? Well, you're asking you're asking the Epson guy this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I I I do have a bit of a luxury over others in that I have access to everything, and uh, I use everything now. You know, for the trade show printing, I have to use everything because we want to show how all these different printers can work. So at the time we're taping this, I just completed all this stuff for Photo Plus, and I printed on the R3000, the 4900, the 7900, the 7890, and the 9900. And they all have their uh, their pros and cons. The cons with the large printers, you're just, and I'm doing all this in my home office. I find it very difficult to do this at work because it's just hard to do at work. So the only real negative when you're working with 24-inch and 44-inch printers, you know, like the 7900, 7890, 9900, is how much space they take up. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much the space of the printer, but how do you deal with the print when it starts coming out of the printer? Mm. <laughs> it's something a lot of people, I see people at trade shows, and they're kind of tape measurers, and they go, hey, this isn't bad. I can put this against the wall. And I, I go, oh, I always stop them. I go, this is for your home, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How big is the room? Oh, yeah, I know the printer's going to fit in there. But when a 40 by 60 inch uh, roll paper comes out and that cutter comes across and goes, Shoot, how are you going to deal with that? <laughs> Those are important things to consider. Printers that are, you know, fun to work with, 
the R3000, which is a 13-inch wide printer, mm -hmm. there's just something about it, because of its footprint, uh, because it also is wireless, it's just a really easy printer to just kind of pull out of the corner, fire up, and, and away you go. The, the 4900 is a, a wonderful printer if you want to do rolls and you don't want to go into 24-inch. The key to the, the 4900, it's really about production. It's hard for me to answer your question because I love them all. Yeah. Do you have a particular affinity for a paper? Sometimes the, the newest ones seem to be capture a lot of people's attention, but do you have one that sort of you feel like, you know, this is like my sort of baby when it comes to my own photographs? Well, I have some built-in prejudice for exhibition fiber paper uh, because I was part of a team that helped build it from scratch. And But there's a fun story behind that. Uh, this would have been in, oh, I don't know, we started talking about this probably right, 2002, 2003. Uh, this was in a time when it was very, very difficult to do black and white photography through inkjet. And and I was pushing really hard for us to have a black, a dedicated black and white paper, and this would get through all the technical hurdles. But that was my analog bias and kind of uh, past, you know, seeping through uh, when the, uh, the person who was running the project, he just called me up, younger guy, and, and he said, dude, comma, this stuff looks great in color. What's with this black and white stuff? You know, it'll work good for both. And it was kind of this interesting, one of those little moments in my um, career at Epson where I had kind of a duh. You know, a paper doesn't have to be dedicated to black and white or color. It can work both ways. I can remember my first week at Epson, uh, and I was learning. I was teaching myself how to do inkjet printing, and I opened up a box and then immediately closed it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a big laugh about an hour later. <laughs> and for those uh, who have never worked in a dark room, you're probably going, what's so funny? But we've all had that experience of, oh, I just exposed the paper. So that was uh, that was another moment. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but uh, exhibition fiber, you know, a special place in my heart because it was designed to be like a double weight, air dried F surface paper from the darkroom. And uh, some of my colleagues had never been in a darkroom; they didn't know what the F stood for. <clears throat> and you know, a lot of people still don't. It means ferrotyping. And then it was Ansel Adams who said, "Hey." I'm going to take this paper meant for ferrotyping and not ferrotype it, meaning let it air dry versus putting against a metal drum for a high gloss. And we were after that textural quality, which has a, a soft gloss, but it's not glossy. It has a textural quality, but the texture's not there. There's just something about it. Uh, the one thing that I was pushing for, and fortunately my colleagues laughed at me and I never proceeded, I said, you know, Maybe we should make exhibition fiber and have all the kind of curl and wave of how an air-dried print looked, you know. And then we realized, well, that would lead to a bunch of head strikes, and everyone hated that anyway now. <laughs> but, but exhibition fiber brings me back to that first print I made in, you know, when I was 14 years old in a, in a bathroom with a little red glowing safe light. Uh, it's kind of the, the best of both worlds. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I was watching a PBS program. I think it was the, uh, the news hour. And there was a, a section about some people who had purchased boxes at an auction 
and discovered these amazing photographs taken in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. And it turns out they had discovered the work of a woman named Vivian Meyer. Are you familiar with Vivian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very familiar okay. with her work. And I was, um, I was struck at this imaging, which reminded me of why I got started in photography in the first place. Uh, I mean, some people describe it as street photography. Some people describe it as uh, almost film noir. But what I saw in it was this great sense of design, of shapes. I was really inspired by the work of Dorothea Lange. And, and it seemed like this person who really did this uh, part-time on the weekends also was inspired by Dorothea Lange, but captured you know, a period of her life in Chicago that uh, just has a certain quality to it that I, I just love looking at. Mm-hmm. And some of the pictures aren't great, but that's okay. You know, they, I just see this use of classic compositional elements of thirds, of shapes, of contrast. And it's an amateur photographer who, who did amazing work. And, I, I, and there's a certain naivete to it. It's not polished. And I sometimes look at that to kind of ground myself because it's so easy in our world with all the tools and technology we have to make these ultimate perfect images. But sometimes there's a certain, you know, stuff that's just a little rough around the edges is what photography should be about. Yeah. And there's a documentary uh, in the works about her and her work. So I'm looking forward to that. I'd love to see that. It's hard for me to say who's the one photographer because I have worked with hundreds of uh, amazing photographers. So it's an unfair question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why I ask it. (laughs) But uh, I just love looking at this and I'm looking at it now and I'm just, you know, mesmerized by it. And there's a few clunkers in there. So um, where can people go to find out more about you and everything you do? Well, for my my own personal work, uh, I am now doing a, a blog at dansteinhart.com. And I try to do a, a picture a week and in three paragraphs or less, show and describe a picture I've shot between meetings at Epson. You know, in my, my paying job at Epson, I incorporate a lot of my background in photography and, um, and now a lot with video. If you look in the video library of uh, the Epson professional site at proimaging.epson.com and go into the Epson library, you'll see a lot of interviews and a lot of even product-oriented stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm producing many of those. Anything with photography, I've done all of those. You'll see a little bit of the personal side of Dano in the commercial work that's there. Well, great. Well, Dan... Thank you so much for making time for me. It's always a pleasure to see you, but it was great fun to have a chance to, to talk to you in depth today. Okay. And next time, uh, ask me to name 20 photographers and influence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you're hearing, you can support this show in a variety of ways. You can donate any amount using PayPal. A link can be found on the Candid Frame website. Also, if you click on our affiliate links and make purchases through Amazon, B&H, or Adorama, you can also help us to continue to produce the best interview show on photography.
The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available through incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.